0: Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Andy Murphy. The federal government provided incentives for prospective farmers to move west and try their hand at plowing up the Great Plains. It was a way to increase expansion into the lands that once sustained tribes all across the middle of the country. But the idea was poorly conceived and soon all agriculture enterprises were replaced by swirling clouds of blowing dust. The Dust Bowl was a disaster for Native Americans as well as homesteaders, and the policies that arose from that time continue to have land and water use repercussions. We'll hear the Native perspective of the Dust Bowl coming up right after the news.
1: This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Indigenous communities up and down Alaska's west coast are still reeling from a historic storm that slammed into the state over the weekend. In Chivak, 136 miles west of Bethel, the native village and the city declared a state of emergency during a joint meeting Tuesday. The emergency declaration is effective immediately and comes after the remnants of Typhoon Merbach destroyed dozens of boats people use for fishing and hunting. Many people in the Chupik community also report losing fishnets, dry houses and racks and other gear and equipment essential to the indigenous subsistence lifestyle in western Alaska. Dozens of fishing and hunting camps miles upriver are also likely destroyed. Most people haven't had time to check yet. Residents in the village of nearly 1,000 are still advised to boil their drinking water four days after floodwaters from the storm inundated the community's drinking water system. The city and tribal council plan to use the community's VHF radio system Wednesday to broadcast more information about the emergency declaration and how residents can seek assistance in creating an inventory of their losses. Communities throughout the region still have weeks of work ahead to assess damages and prepare for winter freeze-up, which is only weeks away. The Alaska Native Community in Anchorage is coming together Wednesday night for a fundraiser and donation drop-off site to help people impacted by the storm on the West Coast. The potluck-style event will include a silent auction and raffles. The community will be gathering donations of clothing, winter gear, boots, jackets, and canned goods. The event at the Alaska Native Heritage Center is being hosted by First Alaskans Institute, Native People's Action, Native Movement, American Red Cross, and the Rasmussen Foundation. The U.S. Justice Department is holding a tribal consultation in Anchorage this week on violence against women. The agency will host nearly 600 participants, including 55 tribal leaders. They'll provide recommendations to the agency on funding programs and enhancing the safety of Alaska Native and American Indian women and ways to improve access to crime information and criminal justice information systems. National Voter Registration Day was Tuesday to raise awareness of voter registration opportunities and reach voters who may not register otherwise. As Eric Tigadoff reports, a Native vote group in Montana is working to help people prepare to vote in November.
2: With less than two months to go until Election Day, efforts to ensure people can cast their ballots are ramping up. Natanya O'Neill with Western Native Voice says her group has been working in communities to check folks' registration status. She says this will make it easier on November 8th.
0: They have all of the information that they need. They're prepared Got their identification with them and they know that they are able to vote with the changes in the laws last year. It is a learning curve for a lot of people.
2: In 2021, Montana lawmakers passed legislation that affected voter registration. One measure tightens voter identification laws so that people who are registering with a voter ID, for instance, need a secondary form of identification. Another measure eliminates Election Day voter registration, requiring people to sign up to vote by the Friday before Election Day. A judge in Yellowstone County District Court has heard challenges to both of these laws and could make decisions on their legality before the November election. In the meantime, O'Neill says people should be prepared to vote in what will be a consequential election. Because of the 2020 census results, Montana will have two congressional districts for the first time in 30 years.
0: With the changes in the congressional seats that we've got, we need to make sure that people are aware of how much this will impact them
2: Montana also is in the middle of redistricting on the state level, although maps won't be finalized until after the election. I'm Eric take it off,
1: And I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
3: National Native News is produced by Kwanic Broadcast Corporation, with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Vision Maker Media's ninth biennial Vision Maker Film Festival, celebrating together. The Vision Maker Film Festival will present five weeks of indigenous films at visionmakermedia.org, October 10th to November 11th, 2022. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribalrelations. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.
0: This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy sitting in for Sean Spruce. The Dust Bowl created a dire situation for everyone living in the lower Great Plains. Drought and poor agriculture methods ended decades of federal Western expansion policy giving settlers from the East plots of land in places that tribes had used forever. Soon, no one could live on the ruined land and people were forced to migrate elsewhere. The Dust Bowl? also prompted a series of federal land and water policies that were detrimental to f- tribes S- some of the pol- some of those policies uh, continue to reverberate today In this hour, we'll take a look at what led up to the Dust Bowl and get a perspective you might not often hear about. And we'll track some of the subsequent land and water policies from a native point of view. You can join our discussion by calling 1-800-996-2848. Do you or someone you know, uh, did they live through the Dust Bowl? Was your family forced to slaughter livestock because of the government's early soil conservation efforts? The number to call is 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us from Minneapolis, Minnesota, is Dr. David Chang. He is a professor of history and American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota. He is Kanaka Maoli. Welcome to Native America Calling, David.
4: It's so nice to be here. Thank you very much.
0: Yes, thank you for joining us. Uh, So, you know, before the Dust Bowl, there was, of course, a lot happening. This is the 30s, and um, this was still the time, uh, you know, tribes were, um, you know, in reservations and there was a lot going on with land. What was the situation for tribes in Oklahoma leading up to the Dust Bowl?
4: Well, things were changing a lot and had been changing for a couple decades um, very dramatically. In the eastern part of the state, Um, What was called Indian Territory had been allotted in the late 1800s and in the beginning of the 1900s, leading up to Oklahoma statehood in 1907. Um, And so there you have uh, national lands of the the tribal nations being cut up into allotments, which is when you assign an individual plot to, uh, to, to tribal members. In the western part of the state, what had originally been called Oklahoma Territory, reservations remained more intact. But both places changed really dramatically after 1907, when Oklahoma statehood came into being. And in the decades that followed, many, many settler farmers came in, and they transformed this region of the Southern Plains. Um, Drought wasn't new, and periods of drought were not new to the Southern Plains. Um, But native land use had been sustainable with periods of drought. But then you had a major period of the privatization of land ownership, and you have all kinds of settler farmers coming in, and they're planting wheat dramatically in the west and cotton dramatically in the east, and you have all this tractoring and plowing and making soil very vulnerable and removing the native plants from that soil. So when the drought hit, um, and the, the the soil was loosened, it was dry, and things were going to be devastating um, and all of that needs to be kept in mind with the very recent bringing of all these large-scale Western agricultural methods that were damaging the soil.
0: Right. And um, so so um, the Dust Bowl, uh, there was also the Great Depression, right, happening at that same time?
4: Absolutely. They, they pretty much fell at the same time. The major drought started around 1930, and the Depression started around the same time. But, you know, one way of looking at it from the point of view of Native America is that Native Americans had been in the Depression for much of the 20s, mm-hmm. um, which you'd had, you'd had allotment. And then you have Native people who are really, really suffering, um, especially, I'm thinking here, what I know more about in the eastern part of the state in the 1920s, um, as kind of the consolidation of a settler economy and settler power in eastern Oklahoma is marginalizing the ones... A fairly affluent and extensive um uh economy of eastern oklahoma indian territory and so the the depression came a decade earlier really for uh native oklahomans in the east in the west people were also suffering as the wheat is growing so you have um what you have is uh people who had once owned their land altogether and had access to farming being reduced to the, they lose their land because allotment um, and then after that the failure to live up to protections for native landowners meant that many native people ended up landless very quickly and ended up as tenant farmers or as farm laborers in the west as wheat harvesting labor um, and then you add on to that. This um, this climate, this ecological crisis, and you can see how allotment and the policy that created one kind of economy, this large agricultural settler economy in Oklahoma, um, that set up Native people to really suffer once the depression and the climate uh, and and the, and the drought hit in the '30s, and it led many Native people to to give up on their um, traditional rural and agricultural life, and many had to, many migrated away. A um, very famous story of the Okies, of the Oklahoma migrants and Arkies, because the Dust Bowl's not just Oklahoma, it's the Southern Plains. Uh, much of it was hit hard, Texas and parts of um, neighboring states as well. And many people left. There's that very famous picture, Migrant Mother by Dorothea Lang. And it's it's this classic picture of the Oklahoma migrant, and at this point, I think that picture was taken near Oroville, California, where she was out picking peas with her children. And um, that she's a Cherokee woman, born near Tahlequah, father on the tribal rolls, and um, she had been forced. and It's a great demonstration how allotment and years of policy um, had um, had taken away the possibility. For native people in that part of the world, for many of them to stay on their land,
0: right. So, so that was a very different time than um, today. I mean, speaking about the land situation, so uh, there wasn't like a uh, like a reservation where um, you know that folks could, uh, native folks could, you know, live and at least you know that land would be you know held in trust and and be. You know say from uh people trying to uh you know take take that land or or sell that land to non-natives
4: absolutely like Mm -hmm. um so so if you would take the example florence owens thompson that famous migrant mother picture from the 1930s her grandparents lived on cherokee nation Mm
5: -hmm.
4: they couldn't be landless because they were cherokee citizens But that federal government had forced the Cherokees into a position where they had to accept allotment, giving up their um, tribal lands, what we'd call a reservation, their national lands and cutting up into little bits. And the thing about owning a little bit of land is it's easy to lose a little bit of land when you own it individually. So you take that and you, um, and you add that with agricultural policy and, that, that, that works against small native farmers and you set up a situation where many people lose everything Got it. and they have to move
0: okay all right let's uh, let's bring in another guest uh from richmond virginia we have dr david wilkins with us he's a professor at the university of richmond and he's lumbee. uh welcome back david david are you there
6: Yes,
0: I'm here. Oh, okay. All right, uh, David. Uh, so so we're, we're talking about a lot of policy. We're talking about um, how Native people have, are, are being affected this time in the, the decade of the 30s. We got the Dust Bowl going on. We got the Great Depression. Uh, what kind of policies from the government um, were created to sort of alleviate some of this uh, uh, economic and agriculture uh, struggle going on?
6: Yeah, it all sort of begins with um, the Lewis and Miriam report that uh, called the Problem of Indian Administration that was uh, sought by Congress in 1926. It was a two year study. It was the most comprehensive study of the federal government's policies as they had impacted Native peoples across the country. Um, And by the conclusion of that report, uh, that was when it was produced in 1928, it showed an extremely dark Portraits of Native people throughout the country. Poverty was rampant. Healthcare was terrible. Housing was virtually non-existent. Uh, education uh, was 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 terrible. Uh, many Indians, thousands of Indians, had been made landless because of policies like David Chang just mentioned. Various allotments were, and Native peoples had lost their allotments through various uh, fraudulent actions by state officials and local officials. Uh, it was a really dark very dark period Um, and that report prompted other federal agencies to get involved and conduct their own investigations Um, and there were a number of studies done over the next couple of years that led up to uh, uh, John Collier becoming commissioner in 1933 uh, when he was hired um, to become uh, head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs Uh, and when Franklin Roosevelt becomes president um, he creates his new deal and that um ushers in a, a great wave of policies uh that were designed to help all of amer all americans but including native peoples as well and john collier made sure that indian peoples re- received uh at least a share of resources that uh other americans were receiving as well so you have the works progress administration uh providing uh services and benefits, public works administration, the FOIA conservation service, um, the uh, civilian conservation Corps played a huge role um, in forest service as well. So native peoples were benefiting from these policies um, and procedures, jobs were coming in. Uh, and of course, when the Indian Reorganization Act is adopted the next year in 1934, that also uh, creates uh, a a bevy of additional programs and benefits that natives had not had for many decades.
0: Okay. All right, Uh, that is uh, Dr. David Wilkins. We'll be back right after this short break. Alaska is still adding up the damage from the historically strong storm that blew through over the weekend. Flooding and strong winds damaged homes, roads, and basic utilities along a 1,000 mile stretch of the state's coastline. We'll get a status update from Alaska on some of the damage and what's needed to help residents get back to normal. That's on the next Native America Calling. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy, and we're taking a look at the Dust Bowl and how it affected Native Americans. It coincided with the Great Depression. Do your parents or grandparents tell you about what it was like to live through the 30s? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99NATIVE. Let's bring back uh, Dr. David Wilkins. We were just getting into the uh, New Deal that the, the federal government had come up with, to alleviate some of these um, agriculture and economic uh, disasters that were happening during the, the 30s, the, the Dust Bowl era. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Wilkins, um, were all of these uh, policies that benefited farmers, were, were they always made available to Native American uh, farmers and, and, and people who needed them?
6: Well, John Collier certainly made a point uh, uh, as commissioner uh, to see that the programs that the 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 Mm Roosevelt administration had put into place were in fact made available to native peoples. Uh, So native people were benefiting from those programs that were designed for the larger society, but Collier and under the Indian Reorganization Act also implemented policies specifically designed for indigenous peoples. Uh, to restore lands, uh, to support tribal government development, to create business corporations. Uh, it created a revolving loan fund, which provided some monies for tribes uh, who wanted to start businesses in, in economic development uh, and, and emergency relief funds that was tailored for Native peoples. So, Native people were benefiting from, from those programs too. Of course, Congress never fully supported uh, the Indian Reorganization Act as much as Collier had hoped that it would. Uh, and so while the benefits were, some of the benefits were there, any country still did not uh, come out as well as it might have had Congress fulfilled the letter of the law and made all of the offerings that, uh, that Collier uh, and Felix Cohen and Nathan Markle uh, pushed for.
0: Okay. And, you know, doing research on this era, um, you know, we still hear about, on the Navajo Nation where I'm from, we still hear about this big killing off of thousands and thousands of sheep during this time. Uh, can you talk about the Livestock Reduction Act and, and how that, uh, um, you know, played out in Native America?
6: Yes, that was the uh... A devastating program uh, that um, John Collier, Oil Conservation Service, and other agencies that had been put into place in, during the New Deal to, to combat um, both the Great Depression's effects and the Dust Bowl effects, uh, and they looked at the Navajo Nation and and, and and saw that there was some overgrazing that was taking place, but they elevated the amount of overgrazing and used that as justification. Uh, to go in and begin to produce the livestock herds of the Navajo Nation, in part because they were concerned that the overgrazing uh, of the Navajo lands, their perspective was causing silt to build up behind Boulder Dam, which would later become Hoover Dam. And they worried that that would impact the efficiency of that dam to, continue to provide electricity for the major urban areas of the Southwest. But as Richard White shows in his study, uh, the roots of dependency, the Navajo Nation, uh, you know, had been subject throughout history to various periods of erosion cycles. There was already a drought in place, and while there are portions of the Navajo Nation that was in fact that were in fact overgrazed, they they did did not deserve the treatment that they received from the federal government. And in fact, from 1933 to 1946, the Navajo Nation. AND THEIR CITIZENS LOST OVER 60% OF THEIR LIVESTOCK HERD. Uh, horse, HORSES, CATTLE, uh, AND GOATS, AND SHEEP. Uh, AND IT DEVASTATED THEM. AND THEY WERE put PLACED IN AN ECONOMIC DEPARTMENT THAT THEY WOULD NOT BE ABLE TO emerge FROM UNTIL THE ni- LATE 1950,
0: EARLY 1960. RIGHT. Right, I'd like to bring in uh, Dr. David Chang, uh, professor of history and American Indian studies at University of uh, Minnesota. So, um, you know, the, there was a lot of policy being made, a lot of maybe misconceptions about uh, Indigenous ways of life and living and agriculture. Um, how did how did discri- you know discrimination play out? Uh, you know, with some of these policies policies made uh during this dust bowl period
4: well from what i've seen in oklahoma the problem and this is true in a lot of federal policy the problem is implementation Mm -hmm. so first of all professor wilkins david wilkins raised the issue of well collier and his cohort came up with great ideas for policy and sometimes the legislation got through but if it wasn't fully funded Native people didn't get the support they needed and deserved. And then in terms of general policy, um, you are dependent on local officials very often to execute that. So that means that there might be federal legislation which is technically equitable, um, but locally it's going to be some agent on the ground. And he might be an employee of the federal government, he might be a state employee, he might be a county employee, um, but they're the ones who are going to decide which farmers are going to have access to a credit program or to technical support in agriculture or to um, the kind of cooperatives that were helping to support prices. So what I saw in my research on rural eastern Oklahoma was that the, the, the local authorities um, often led to discrimination and access So what that meant was that programs that, um, it's not that Native people never got support through these programs, but they got it less often is what was my finding. Um, And so that meant that there was was an advantage for the non-Native farmers over the Native farmers. And over the years, that adds up. And I'd say this is a familiar story in the history of agriculture um, and Native Americans, but also African Americans. This Mm -hmm. question of differential access to programs, really working against um, farmers, Native farmers, Black farmers over the decades is a very powerful one.
0: Okay. All right, Um, I think this is a a good time to go to this um, audio uh, interview we have here. Uh, We were able to talk to Hannah Holloman. She is an Associate Professor of Sociology and Environmental Studies at Amherst College. She joined us over the phone to talk about her research, which focuses on the relationship between settler colonialism and the Dust Bowl.
5: When most people think about the Dust Bowl, they think of the crisis of soil degradation and erosion on the U.S. Southern Plains as a distinctly regional event and problem, something that just happened here. And this is how most Dust Bowl historians have treated it. But what I've shown in my research is that what was happening on the Southern Plains region here was also happening in many parts of the world where colonial expansion undermined or supplanted indigenous land use and agricultural practices and imposed a kind of system of white territorial control and cash crop agriculture, um, which is usually developed for export from the region. I think the most important federal policy to understand is the are the were the policies of expansion west of the Mississippi that allowed for um, white settlement in the area in the region known known as the Dust Bowl. And so you think of both um, the military, you know, the military efforts west of the Mississippi, but also um, the Homestead Act, the Morrill Act, and other policies that made it possible for white settler farmers to establish um, residency and, and develop cash crop agriculture in the Plains region. And so those were policies um, that made it, those developments possible. And they also set the stage for the development of a kind of agriculture that was more geared towards short-term profit-making than long-term um, caretaking of the land. And so I think what's important is that the idea that you can treat both people and the land as disposable is deeply rooted kind of in the culture of white supremacy and colonialism, and it was reflected in federal policies of the era leading up to the Dust Bowl.
7: And uh, your book it's called... Dust Bowls of Empire, Imperialism, Environmental Politics, and the Injustice of Green Capitalism. You touched on how green capitalism specifically touches on the, the Dust Bowl.
5: Yeah, so the idea that you can somehow, you know, have ecological transformation without massive social transformation is at the heart of the idea of green capitalism the idea that somehow through technological development and um, minor policy reforms that you can create a greener version of the capitalist system is, is at, the, at the core of that idea. And the reason that I critique that is like if you look at the example of the Dust Bowl, the kind of technological um, fixes that were developed and the policy fixes that were put in place to address the crisis of soil erosion didn't actually resolve the crisis. Didn't result in a more sustainable, more sustainable um, program of land use. They basically just kicked the problem further down the road. So for today, for today, for example, it's like instead of kind of developing an, an agriculture appropriate for the region, they've mined Ogallala Aquifer, which has resulted in um, water shortages in the region, and they've also, you know, developed a deeper dependency on chemicals and um, other um, industrial techniques in agriculture rather than develop a more sustainable um, land use practice and policy. And we see this happening not just with problems in agriculture, but in lots of other areas where, for example, instead of you know really addressing the climate crisis, they're talking about carbon sequestration, but the idea that we can just keep doing what we're doing and somehow tweak things around the edges hasn't historically and isn't today kind of resolving the crisis we're seeing with just kicking them further down the road and actually making them bigger
7: What are some of the myths you want to sort of smash when it comes to the dust bowl?
5: I mean, I think the biggest one is that it was just something that happened in in this country, but it was actually one example of a, of a global problem of soil erosion that developed alongside the expansion of colonialism internationally. So that's one myth. Another myth is the idea that it was somehow resolved. And so we haven't, you know, had another Dust Bowl. But I think um, all the research that we have shows that agriculture in the region is just as vulnerable today as it was back then. And another, um, I don't know if you would call it a myth, but a misconception and misrepresentation is that the people that were most affected by the Dust Bowl were the white settlers and kind of Okies that you see in all of the pictures who were displaced, you know, and and on their way out west. And so um, there are actually, obviously, you know, um, indigenous communities and tribal nations and also um, black farming communities that were severely affected by the Dust Bowl and didn't have access to the same federal resources that were brought to bear um, on white um, farmers' troubles.
7: And why do you think the, uh, the Dust Bowl is important today?
5: So the most important um, thing about the Dust Bowl is, one, where living scientists have told us that we're um, entering what they're calling a new Dust Bowl era. And you're in the southwest. You're seeing this right now. We have unprecedented droughts. That combined with the sort of unresolved issues with land degradation mean that we're heading into a period where um, one scientist has said, the climatology of the Dust Bowl has become the new normal. And I think learning from that period what what worked and what didn't work, um, what was resolved and what was kind of left intact, is real important for thinking about how we're going to address this new Dust Bowl era that's exacerbated by the climate crisis.
7: What else do you want people to know about the Dust Bowl?
5: I mean, one important thing is that people knew about the crisis of soil erosion for for decades leading up to the Dust Bowl. It wasn't a surprise that that happened. There were reports coming out, not just from the um, Southern Plains region, but from around the world about how this colonial agricultural expansion was causing, um, wreaking kind of ecological and social havoc. So people knew, and it could have been prevented had there been... um, the, the political will, had they been willing to kind of challenge the the status quo um, of the time, and that didn't happen. And I think that's an important lesson for us to think about for today. Um, also, like I said, another thing that it's important to know is that the problems of that period were not resolved. The New Deal um, programs didn't resolve the crisis. They have gotten bigger. So we actually have a, 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 large, a bigger problem with soil erosion and degradation in agricultural lands today, than we even saw in the 1930s. And again, um, third, the, the most important thing, I think, moving forward is to realize like we're living in a new Dust Bowl era. And um, I think where we see, for example, the tribes kind of really leading the way in terms of resistance to car- what some people are calling, calling carbon colonialism and in the resistance to building new pipelines like Line 3, what we see in a standing rock, um, and in discussions about land and water rights in the southwest in the face of drought. Um, but, but those conditions that we saw in the 1930s, we um, need to be prepared for and be thinking about what kinds of alliances and resistance do we need to develop today so that we don't see a repeat of what happened in that era on a new and larger scale.
0: That was Hannah Holliman from Amherst College talking with uh, our producer Sol Traverso. Uh, let's go to a caller we have. Um, who, who? Oh, we have uh, we have Manuel calling in from uh, Oglala, South Dakota, li- listening on Keeley. Hey, Manuel. <coughs> Manuel. All right, let's uh, let's go back to our guest uh, Dr. David Wilkins, professor at the University of Richmond. Um Dr. Wilkins, when we talk about uh policy here, um how what what how did these policies from this era, this this decade, how did it how did it cause long-lasting effects in uh Native America? We're we're going to go to break in just a minute here. Yeah.
2: Um
6: Well, it was it was profound um, in in variable ways because with any country being as diverse as it is, uh, the impacts of Dust Bowl and the Great Depression were felt uh, in various were felt variably across uh, Indian country. Uh, So while the Navajo Nation was being devastated uh, because of the livestock reduction that their alleged uh, overgrazing had caused. Uh, Tribes, like some of the Pueblos, and the Hoop of California uh, actually were able to make it through uh, in decent form, although they were still suffering uh, because of various things. Um, But the policies that the IRA put into place continued to provide a foundation on which Native peoples were able to begin to reconstruct their nations.
0: Okay. All right, uh, we'll be back right after this break here, but uh, we're talking about the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. We're talking about the 30s. It seemed like it was a very miserable time for everybody, including uh, Native Americans in that Oklahoma and uh, Southern Great Plains area. Um, After the break, we'll bring in uh, Greg Scott. He's a soil scientist, and we'll talk about that uh, soil erosion we've been mentioning all throughout this first first half of the hour. And um, we'll talk about what uh, restoration, soil restoration efforts are happening in the area right now. But you can give us a call. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99NATIVE. Do your elders talk about living through the Dust Bowl and Great Depression of the 30s? Give us a call and tell us about it.
3: Support by the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at Highlands University, now offering the opportunity to earn a culturally relevant clinical Master of Social Work degree without leaving your own community. This online MSW degree focuses on a small, supportive model with a clinical concentration. Students in rural areas, tribal communities, and or who live far from campus are given preference. Application deadline is October 15th at online.nmhu.edu
0: this is native america calling i'm andy murphy today's discussion is about the dust bowl it was a man-made disaster triggered by drought that caused eroded soil to blow away in huge dust storms that darkened skies from the oklahoma panhandle area to the east coast if you're a farmer what lessons did you learn from past agricultural mistakes Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99NATIVE. Let's go to our caller, Manuel in Oglala, South Dakota, listening on Keeley.
7: Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment about water. I understand my father's spring out in Slim Buttes provided water for the surrounding community. Just thought I'd comment on that. Thank you.
0: Okay. All right. Thank you for uh, giving us a call. I'd actually like to go back to uh, Dr. David Wilkins. Um, He's the uh, professor at uh, the University of Richmond in Virginia. Uh, Dr. Wilkins, um, you know, up in that lower Great Plains area, um, how were how were policies affecting water specifically like the Missouri River up in that area because of what was going on during the Dust Bowl?
4: Um,
6: I really can't speak to that so much. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, that's a little bit out of my daily wick.
0: Okay. Um, how about uh, Dr. David Chang over at the University of uh, Minnesota? Um, how were folks in the lower Great Plains area affected by what was going on uh, during the Dust Bowl?
4: Well, um, how, how you were affected in general by the Dust Bowl or by, by dams?
0: Yeah, yeah, but was all that dam work that happened during that time, was that from uh, what was going on during the Dust Bowl?
4: Um, It wasn't because of the Dust Bowl exactly, but it was related to the kind of politics that uh, David Wilkins was talking about a little bit in the broader context of federal initiatives that we call the New Deal. And um, those policies were, one of the things that they wanted to do was to stimulate the Um, economic development in certain parts of the country, including the Southern Plains and um, Tennessee Valley and some other rural parts of the country. And they wanted to do that partly through um, creating electrical sources. And part of that was to create hydroelectric dams in many places. And so if you look at a map of Oklahoma now in Uh, you'll see in the eastern half of the state these long skinny lakes and none of those lakes used to be there Mm. all of those lakes and you'll see this throughout the southeastern United States all those lakes were created um, predominantly sometimes for water but also for hydroelectric development that provided short-term employment for people in those regions as um, young men were hired to help build them and that did include sometimes native men um but it also it's important to remember that these happened on rivers where native people lived and where they lived for a very long time where native people farmed and where they farmed for a very long time so you have a lot of communities getting flooded out um in these valleys that no longer exist and this again gets the kind of the issue of policy that holliman Uh, that Hannah Holloman from Amherst College was just talking about and who they're for. Allotment policy created landowners for white settlers, but it created landlessness for Native people. And the encouraging mechanized agriculture in the Southern Plains created some affluence for a lot of settler farmers in the 1920s, but it created a vulnerable soil on Native land, and that Native land was then destroyed of many years because of the dust storms that followed and hydroelectric development the kind of dams that you're talking about or the creation of a water supply for growing settler cities that created opportunity for some but it took away um homelands for native people Got so it. all of this needs to be thought of as an ecological crisis but it's also policy laid the basis for all of it and that policy from allotment to the kind of dams you're asking about, um, systematically favor white settlers over native people.
0: Got it. All right. Um, Let's actually go to um, our other guest here. We have another guest from Oklahoma City, Larry O'Dell. He's the director of communications at the Oklahoma Historical Society. Hey, Larry. Hey, how are you? doing pretty good. I kind of want to get out of the dust bowl here. (laughs) Um, So what was, you know, happening, uh, you know, as the as the 30s were going into the 40s, you know, what was um, Oklahoma, especially like when, you know, kind of like the worst is over, all these policies have been made, the New Deal policies have been uh, made and laid out, like, what was what was life like leading out of this uh this era here
7: well first i agree with everything that's been said before about how this occurred um 60 of of the farmers in oklahoma in the 30s were tenant farmers many of them in eastern oklahoma so when uh, the agriculture adjustment administration were paying landowners not to plant crops that dispossessed tenant farmers as the influence of mechanization of agriculture happened landowners could get more done without having to rely on tenant farmers so the majority of the okies that left for california and other western states were actually tenant farmers from eastern oklahoma unless the people affected directly by the dust bowl in
0: northwestern oklahoma got it and um, how, what was the signal or what was the sign that uh, this, the Great Depression, this Dust Bowl, this kind of like a decade of misery was over?
7: Um, it didn't, in Oklahoma, it really didn't end until the, the dawn of World War II. Mm. And that saw another out-migration of people that work in the, uh, in the different uh, military plants around the country, but also, of course, to the war. So. Like most of America, after World War II, prosperity—short-term prosperity—came for Oklahoma.
0: Okay, and um, how is Oklahoma agriculture and economies still affected by um, the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression?
7: Well, um, we have through a lot of federal programming. We've had, you know, shelf uh, tree shelters and things, and we've definitely improves our system of agriculture, but the individual farmer has dissipated and its more large corporate farms, Mm -hmm. and that's what's going on, mainly in the panhandle where the dust bowl was, our large, uh, huge pig farms.
0: Okay. Did you say uh, tree shelters?
7: Tree shelters. Yeah, they would plant trees to stop the wind from uh, blowing away the topsoil.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah. And, um, you know, what, what um, other parts of Oklahoma were most affected by uh, the Dust Bowl?
7: The, the most affected area, of course, was the Panhandle in northwestern Oklahoma. But relative to eastern Oklahoma, a few of them left. Many stayed and, and endured the hardship. Um, southwestern Oklahoma and eastern Oklahoma did suffer from a, a drought, a prolonged drought. And there was also a um, a, dep- a long-term agricultural depression at that time, that led to um, many of these policies that we that some of your guests have talked about.
0: Okay. And, um, how do you see, uh, native people, um, you know, affected by, uh, what was happening, you know, by, by the Dust Bowl, uh, you know, do you see that, uh, there are lasting effects or do you, do you think it's just a whole new brand new era right now? Cause it kind of seems like that in Oklahoma.
7: Um, there are lasting effects for <laughs> sure. Uh, some of your guests have talked about the allotment process there were protections put on the allotment land for 30 years but as he said there was a lot of um corruption going on and one of the things that i wanted to point out that hasn't is the oil boom that happened right after statehood in oklahoma mm-hmm. that that what happened in eastern oklahoma and that led to a lot more swindling and a lot more um dispossessing of land first with the freedmen the african-american folks that were allotted land and then eventually more and more of the other allotments as they could get their hands on it.
0: All right. All right. Thank you so much for uh, joining us, Larry. Um, I'd like to go on to our last guest here. We have from Tryon, Oklahoma, Greg Scott. He's the Oklahoma Conservation Commission Soil Scientist and Geomorphologist. Welcome to Native America calling, Greg. Thank you. All right. So we've been mentioning erosion. We've been mentioning uh, the soil. So um, how exactly did, um, you know, some of these large swaths of land become, you know, just this dusty, you know, uh, dead, you know, (laughs) land?
8: Well, one thing, one little bit of history that's uh, Mm under-recognized is that of course, World War One was the event that led to much of the high plains being plowed to produce wheat, and the government encouraged people to plow up land that they previously hadn't, so it created the uh, took away the protection that that land had, and that was followed by a period of the 1920s that really was very wet and— all over the Great Plains, Oklahoma, through the southeast, was a period of uh, dramatic water erosion that was not recognized at all by the national government. You know, the federal government at that time typically had uh, one employee in a county, and that was the postmaster. Mm -hmm. So the federal government didn't recognize all of this damage that was going on in the 20s, And led to features, uh, well, like the Grand Canyon of Georgia, which is nothing but a massive gully. So Mm -hmm. we lost uh, literally billions of tons of soil in the 20s that set the stage for the 1930s. And it wasn't until dust from the High Plains arrived in Washington that the federal government took it seriously. Now. The Their response, of course, was uh, Dr. Bennett got the Senate's attention. They passed conservation acts. And even at that time, there was knowledge worldwide whereby we could have restored the soil's biological capacity, the water holding capacity, the ability to get water in the soil when it rained. But instead we built terraces and built waterways and built dams and so the soil itself continued to degrade even though we were kind of keeping it in place uh, throughout the 20th century. Until uh, towards the close of the 20th century, there were soils that were functionally dead all over the United States.
0: Okay. All right. Uh, And what does does this land look like now, you know, that had, you know, the most, you know, amount of uh, soil erosion? What does it look like now?
8: Well, surprisingly enough, most of eastern Oklahoma has a cover of uh, various grasses, primarily Bermuda grass. Mm
4: -hmm.
8: And so if you are young, you don't, recognize the damage that has been smoothed out and covered over but yet the landscapes themselves are not growing much vegetation they don't support much grazing they still have the scars of the gullies in the landscape and we still have high runoff so we build the dams to control the floods Mm
2: -hmm.
8: so uh, for instance one of my old neighbors in Lincoln County said, "As a boy, from landscape or from horizon to horizon, the landscape was nearly 100% cotton. Hmm. And today, it's 100% grass and cattle.
0: Mm-hmm. But
8: those pastures are functioning at maybe a fourth of their uh, original health that they had prior to settlement. Okay. Or at least white settlement.
0: Yeah." And how are, how are you working with uh, tribes now for uh, soil reparation? Uh,
8: the tribes themselves are, I'm sorry, really great businessmen.
7: Mm-hmm.
8: They're able to invest in their own lands and increase their holdings. And they are uh, really employing what we call soil health principles to restore those landscapes in terms of native plant production. Uh, native grazing animals, uh, management that emphasizes uh, simply photosynthesis and restores those soils to where when it rains the water soaks in instead of running off. The animals have a constant access to high quality vegetation and both the tribes themselves and tribal members who farm and ranch um, we assist them to help bring those soils back into the biological life and productivity um, and get away from a lot of the modern technologies that rely on artificial support and again return back to the native plants that do the things that we need in that landscape.
0: All right. All right, well, thank you so much, Greg. Um, I wish we could talk a whole lot more about soil health. Uh, personally want to produce a show uh, about soil and how uh, tribes are working to rejuvenate some areas that have been affected by uh, some of these old, uh, outdated forms of agriculture. Um, That is the end of the hour. Uh, I'd like to say thank you so much for uh, the guests who joined us today. We had Dr. David Wilkins, greg scott you just heard from uh dr david chang and larry odell and of course special thanks to hannah Holloman, uh for that pre-recorded interview join us tomorrow for an update on alaskan villages and the coastal areas affected by a historically strong storm that happened over the weekend i'm producer andy murphy my name is assad When
6: I was 19, my mom was diagnosed with colorectal cancer because she smoked. My tip is find things to be thankful for. I'm thankful she quit smoking. I'm thankful for the nurses who taught me how to check her IV and to manage her medication.
2: And I'm thankful for every day we have together because nothing is guaranteed, especially for us. The people you love are worth quitting for. You can quit for free help call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Repatriation
3: is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. Work with experts in the field to form strategies and build relations to better the future of repatriation at the 8th Annual Repatriation Conference, October 11th, 12th, and 13th, hosted by the Association on American Indian Affairs and the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians. Learn more at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show.